The Naive Theater of the Air presents Rewired by Matthew Broyles. Episode 4, War Games. He never got used to it. No matter how many times the doctor had seen the first flickerings through the eyes of a seer, by the ocular implants he'd devised, the appearance of a Vorn on his lab screen always gave him chills. They didn't appear suddenly, but gradually. Patients reported they felt the Vorn before they saw them. They then became aware of something in the corner of their vision and had to search around to bring the creatures into full vision. The ones who had been seers for longer were able to focus on the image more clearly and quickly. This one looked up from its host, in this case the doctor's assistant Arshad, who stood in the room with the patient at a safe distance. The apparition's empty eyes stared directly at the patient and it seemed into Dr. Lilly. There was a mouth there from which the wispy teeth projected during feeding but never any speech. And yet, sometimes there did appear to be some attempt at communication, though he couldn't say exactly how. Unusual body language, prolonged staring, and every so often increased activity in both temporal lobes of the patient, and a pattern derived from the amygdala, which was the most frustrating part from Dr. Lilly's perspective. His patients could see the apparition without an unusual amount of activity in these places, the so-called God-helmet effect. In the beginning, all his working hypotheses suggested that this activity should be the cause of the seeing. Instead, these brain centers only showed increased activity during moments of unusual worn behavior. That didn't make sense for either side of the debate. The creature on his screen now had turned its attention back to feeding on Arshad's neck, something which, of course, the victim never felt or detected in any way. A standard apparition, then. He would give it another ten minutes or so, but normally any variation presented itself within the first few moments. This patient was one of his regulars, a wind farm worker brought in by his boss, a disciple. He had been examined here a number of times, never with notable results. Patients came from far and wide, either of their own volition or in the hands of some organization, devoted either to the worship or fear of the phenomenon. Lilly's Institute was known for being agnostic on the subject, and having been founded by the inventor of rewiring, could communicate with both sides amicably, or as amicable as it got in Texas. The reclamation had been ugly, and the resulting territories were often at cross-purposes, even while clinging tightly to their national identity. The tiny lab in Aeolian was nondescript, betraying none of its secrets to satellite surveillance. Lily himself was a national security secret. He'd watched his obituaries and memorials, following the conflict with a mixture of embarrassment and relief. With all that the world had been through following the rewiring crisis, it was best if there were no walking bullseyes in rogue states threatening more treason. At the same time, he risked becoming a traitor to his own people. There were nights when he awoke in sweats, certain that his clumsy brain hacking had doomed the world to perpetual conflict and consigned portions of the population to incurable mental illness. Then there were those moments when he both hoped and feared that he had actually opened a door into a new dimension of human consciousness. That's what he was here for, to decide. And he couldn't. Not yet. And not without help. Arshad, go to Station 2 and initiate secondary scanning. 
Dr. Lilly spoke into his assistant's earpiece. There was no actual secondary scan, but this was a good way to get our shot out of the room and calm the patient down before removing restraints. His assistant moved to an adjacent room and got on the comm. Lilly himself was blocked from the patient's view via one-way glass. Standard? Standard. I suppose it's possible that we'll get something big from him one day, but for now let's send our results into the field and have him come back in two weeks for re-evaluation. Got it. There were only a few scientists he could trust these days. Everyone was working for one faction or another. It was often hard to tell which. Barrett was thorough when he got down to it, but seemed to spend more of his time on politics these days, which worried Lily. Diaz might actually have been approaching insanity, but he often spotted scan details that Lily didn't. Shu was difficult to reach, always on the move, but he had a keen eye for structural differences between Vorn based on the videos. Not for the first time, he regretted the inability to send data to Nightheart. Certainly she was alive. Someone with her talents was far too valuable to lose. More than one rumor placed her within the White House. He could see that easily. If he were honest, her contribution to rewiring was every bit as significant as his own. Her assistance during the crucial research period was sharply intuitive and led him to conclusions much faster than he would have come to them on his own. If only they'd been able to keep it professional, she might be working with him still. Lily removed his tattered black-rimmed glasses and rubbed his eyes. The human brain was his business. He knew the inner landscape of the mind as well as, and in some cases better than, anyone in history. Which, it turned out, protected him not at all from egregious lapses in judgment. When the report a bug button is broken, he thought, how does the bug get fixed? Absent-mindedly, he checked his downlink queue, shared by his two addresses. The first, the one most informed authorities knew about, was predictably full. New case reports, resumes, follow-ups from dead patients and believers. He had that one throttled down to keep the servers from crashing. Most of his assistant's job, sadly, was filtering through the pile, tossing most of it into the digital dustbin. Technically, it was Arshad's address, as he was the executor of the late Dr. Lilly's scientific estate. With a slight start, he noticed a transmission to the other, less-known address, from Barrett. Fumbling to get his spectacles back on, he double-checked the source note. No mistake, it was from the potentate himself. Lily hadn't heard back from him in months, only dim reports from shared colleagues about his rising political star. Barring malicious behavior, Lily intended to keep him on the distribution list for as long as possible. Barrett's ambition had been clear from the beginning, although when he was still in Lily's lab, he was trained with laser focus on their research. If Lily could still occasionally make use of that scalpel whenever Barrett got around to it from time to time, he'd be a fool to refuse it. A moment after clicking the decrypt, Lily's eyes popped at the subject heading. Lars Selden. Old memories scraped ominously to the surface of his consciousness. There weren't words for the hell that had been unleashed when that one had blown. Sergeant Selden had not been the first of the Vorn Seers, certainly, but he'd been the first to try to kill one of them. The incident had set a chain of events in motion that ultimately led to the necessity of Lily going underground. Bribes, quid pro quo, deals done with the worst of the worst, Anything to keep the details of the bunker incident and its portents in the hands of a select few who could safely handle it. To keep it from the rewired world. Or worse, the wired. He wasn't proud. Things were done. Decisions were made. In truth, it was the spark of that inferno that continued to light his search for the truth of the Vorn phenomenon. The truth about what he had done. For as much as he was told otherwise, the blood of Corporal Clegg was on Dr. Whale and Lily's hands. And would never wash off. 
Stealing himself, the doctor began to read. Growing up in Brooklyn had taught the young, shy Harry Selden that hiding was best accomplished in large groups of people. If ever he needed confirmation, it could be found in Manhattan. Given that the entire island was under continual surveillance from every possible angle, there really was no such thing as secrecy. Thus, the mission of Mandela Squad was one of theater rather than of covert ops. It took tremendous acts of will to keep Harry from fiddling with his wire. Even though it wasn't actually jacked into his brain, the damn thing was sending and receiving to the outside world and it freaked him out. What if we're sending back the wrong responses? What if they've been tracking these? Then I would have been arrested long ago. I've had them on my regular crew. They're underground getting fitted with new ones. If anyone should be afraid, it's them. But these have never left the city. Do no more wires one day just decide to go walk about? I thought their behavior was controlled. Not controlled. Guided. Shaped. Each person has a different range of thoughts, just like you and me. Some are more adventurous than others. In all experience, life changes. Total psychology allows for that. So it isn't all that strange when someone decides to take a trip they've never taken. Harry knew all this, of course. But the idea of walking around with a phantom personality on his scalp inventing stories to keep the grid happy was making him twitchy. What was it saying? Who did the advertiser authorities think he was as he walked by? Dr. Vincent had covered this, though not to his satisfaction. Facial recognition programs were seldom used anymore given the relative ease of accessing a life-casting profile. The sensors saw the wire, not the shell. It occurred to Harry that this arrangement would be a hell of a boon to anyone considering a life of crime. He wondered what Tubman and his crew did in their spare time. Harry sure as hell knew what he would be doing at the moment if he could. On the van trip uptown, they had passed sex stem shops that may as well have come from outer space compared to what he was used to. His father's knowing glare and the sheer terror of being outside of BDF bounds were the only things keeping him off a bender. They wouldn't be in the city for much longer though. Seaman Eric Wright and Seaman Harold Cheney had officially put in for leave and would be departing Penn Station for Chicago the next morning. Why do we have different last names? Won't people see the resemblance? I don't see it. We've spent years establishing these individuals. It's done. Like I said, the grid sees the wire. And the wires see what the grids tell them they see. Wow. How do you live with these people? Mostly I don't. Everyone's wrapped up in their own business. No one notices the help. Actually, a few of them are okay. Guy who runs my local bodega just does his job. Gives me a break on beer. Likes to talk trash about the Mets every now and then. You can get to know people past their wires if you want. They're still just people. People who think they're free. Hell, probably not much worse off than the poor bastards we got back home. Harry pressed his shoulder into the van wall and closed his eyes. He didn't want to be part of this conversation. Their oppression under the dark shadow of the Vorn, the villains currently being masked by the amulet hanging from his father's neck unbeknownst to its bearer, Tubman knew more than likely. Surely if the VEF were arming his dad, they'd know he was a seer. They called it a gift, and yet here they were intentionally dampening it to protect their own people. What was really going to happen when they got to Texas? What hellfire-fueled clockwork Moloch would be set loose upon their arrival? Was Harry bringing them the key? Harry revised his earlier thought from the paper riddles of the psych ward, back when all of this was a shadowy figment. Yes, someone was going to end up dead. And yes, he'd still be damned if it were him. But as for who was going to do the killing, he's going to have to think about that. 
Texas had seen plenty of death already. At the height of the crisis, when the wired population of the urban Interstate 35 corridor called on Washington to protect them from the small but growing West Texas militia, the response from Fort Hood, the largest military installation in the world, had been less than disciplined. Troops went AWOL, checkpoints failed, and from that chaos emerged the towering figure of Colonel Levi Haley, a modern-day mix of General Patton and Davy Crockett. It was as if he had emerged from a movie set, steel-gray temples set into skin that may as well have been bone, keen rust-colored eyes staring relentlessly into some distant horizon. By the time the world knew his name, Haley had already defected, but not before leaving a handwritten call to arms under the pillow of every grunt on the base. Court-martials were threatened by the generals, but few escapees were ever arrested, and almost overnight Haley had gathered his converts at an Air Force base in San Angelo, 200 miles to the west of Fort Hood. Haley's army quickly absorbed the existing militia and set the reclamation into motion. That thought sent Harry's mind into a tailspin. How in the hell were they going to get past the line? The Treaty of Lampasas divided the Republic, everything 45 miles west of I-35 all the way to New Mexico, from the rest of the state. And from reports, the border was impenetrable. Anyone attempting to cross in either direction could be mowed down by either side. That said, Texas was a big place. They were bound to be holes. He didn't much like that thought either. He'd heard rumors about pogroms and remote hippie magnet towns like Alpine and Marfa. The BDF were scary enough, but they were a known quantity. Who knew what horrific fates awaited strangers in the dusty wastelands out west? But of course, first they'd have to get out of New York. As the van pulled up in front of the Shell Company's headquarters, he allowed himself a moment of hope. Mostly that there would be a bed somewhere inside. In any other room, the immense, gleaming, transmetal desk of Dr. James Barrett would have been by far the most imposing feature. But the doctor was a stickler for congruence, and made certain that the other components of his office were equally intimidating. He had a fondness for statuary, adorned by fierce expressions, be they animal or human. His chair even dwarfed him by a foot or two. The walls bore iconic images of scientific achievement, sculpted in relief upon the shimmering blackness. Most men might seem tiny in such a space, but these trappings were only minor magnifications of the man who occupied it. Dr. Barrett paced, compulsively removing and replacing his glasses as he stalked from one end of the desk to the other. From time to time he would rub them vigorously on his sleeve, as if to get at some smudge that could not be removed. Dr. Vincent sat stock still, holding her notepad at the ready, giving some appearance of order amidst the chaos. And how is it possible that we have no idea of this Branwen Lassiter's identity or whereabouts? BDF has yet to find the woman she was replacing. It has to be the VEF. There's no one else organized enough. We were assured the most recent round of background checks cleared out the last of the infiltrators. Evidently not. The question is, did the VEF know about the dampening field generator, or were they just trying to rescue their hero? They will discover it eventually. That will be a fine mess. Even if they find it, they have no one capable of unlocking its potential. They're ideologues, not scientists. Barrett's pacing suddenly ceased. For a split second, Vincent thought she saw a trace of a smile. He turned his gaze. Exactly. What are you proposing? Last night, there was an unexplained outage in the battery tunnel security cameras. 
Enhanced BDF surveillance along the wall indicated a probable perimeter breach on the south end of Governor's Island, and a team was sent to investigate. Into the neutral zone? It's not the first time, but the council will make damn sure it's last. Or next to last, anyway. Meaning? An enemy combatant was apprehended on the island. We applied the probe. Vincent nodded gravely. Barrett knew everything now, or at least everything he could learn from the Tubman. Just one link. One dead link. Two men matching the description of our escapees made it to Manhattan. I can't imagine the Selden boys are on their way to the wired authorities. So the question becomes... Texas. No. Where else? They're bringing him to Lily. They'll never make it. One of them might. Especially now that he's no longer inclined to shoot at shadows. Sergeant Selden is half insane, born visions or no. Which is why you must find him. You can't be serious. The BDF have not sat idly by and left the wired world unmonitored. We have agents in the field, way stations, intelligence connections with other rewired enclaves. Why not send them? No, oh, we will. But you know as well as I do what is truly at stake here. You know what Lars Selden represents. What he is. Dr. Vincent breathed a heavy sigh. She wondered, not for the first time, if Barrett himself knew the answer to that last question. Deliberately, she laid her notepad down on Barrett's desk. You've made up your mind. When am I leaving? Right now. Nina dipped a fry, eyeing it lazily as the inmates ambled through the cafeteria. One less today, she thought. It wasn't that she missed... Harry. He wasn't all that special. But he had been the closest thing to sanity she had encountered for quite some time. The odds were that it would be another long stretch until another semi-aware being found themselves on the site floor. Also, despite the cleaning lady's threat, she did remember. She wondered why no one had questioned her about it yet. Glancing toward the entryway, her wonder ceased. Foch, in full, very, very busy mode, intently marching right in her direction, pulling up to a stop at the desk, his heels clicked. Ms. Golding? You know who I am, Foch. I'm afraid I have some bad news. Let me guess, Harry's missing? No, ma'am. I mean, yes. But also, may we speak in your quarters? Nina sighed. The BDF had to have her pretty low on their suspect list if this was her interrogator. They made their way up to her cluttered room. Foch sat down opposite her. Miss Golding, I'm sorry, but your brother passed away this morning. Michael? Nina hadn't seen him since she was committed years ago, but he wrote often. One of her few family members who did so. What happened? A heart attack. What? Very sudden. He was a bodybuilder and younger than me. Full autopsy results may give us more information, but... All signs at the moment point to myocardial infarction. I'm sorry. Nina shook her head, a single tear finding its way down her cheek. Something wasn't right. She didn't doubt that he was dead, but if Granola Boy had died from a heart attack, she was Cleopatra. Will I at least get to go to his funeral? Dr. Barrett is looking into that. There is a possibility given certain restrictions. I'll keep you informed as events develop. Then came one of the oddest movements she'd ever witnessed which in the psych ward was saying something. Foch reaching out with his stiff, clammy hand and taking hers. The man did compassion like a lobster did back massage. But then she felt it, a slightly rough sensation against her palm. 
something between his flesh and hers. She moved to pull her hand away, but he held it as he did her stare. I'm very sorry for your loss. With that, he closed her hand around the mystery object, and with obvious relief returned to the safety of his personal space. Standing to go, he absent-mindedly offered her a tissue, which she accepted. The news was beginning to kick in, and she craved solitude, in this of all places. I'll be in touch. Irresistibly now, she let the loss take hold of her. One more link to the outside world gone. That was tough to take. A few moments of grief could be spared. Her life hadn't been worth much for quite some time now, and her efforts to keep from sinking into depression had more or less worked so far, based on the hope of eventually reuniting with her family. That hope seemed more remote now, and an icy hand from the depths of fear gripped her heart. She could not despair. That would be the end of her sanity. But her brother was gone, and no force in the world could stop her tears on that account. She allowed sadness its right-of-way through her heart. But as the tide passed, suspicion took its place. Okay, she thought. Let's examine the odds here. Mostly sane man shows up in the ward with a murky backstory. Same man disappears shortly thereafter with the help of a mystery cleaning lady. Hours later, Michael is reported dead from a heart attack at 25. Somewhere, somehow, this gigantic pile of bullshit had a pony under it. Nina's eyes went wide. Wait, where is it? Her hands were full of tissues. She'd thrown some away already, so she fumbled madly in the trash can. There, at the very bottom, crumpled in a snotty tissue, a tiny square of paper, upon which were written three words. Dr. Richard Kimball. Transmission begin. Four minutes, 58 seconds. Hacker on. Recommission power up 622. Status report. Orbit uniform since last transmission. So, happier than I had ever dared hoped to be, I dissolved again into that native infinity of crystal oblivion from which the demon life had called me for one brief and desolate hour. Decommission power down in 60 seconds. Transmission end, four minutes, 59 seconds. Colonel Levi Haley hated the hell out of government. Always had. And yet somehow he always ended up being the one put in charge of it. The five territories didn't have much in the way of a competent political bench to draw from and invariably personal feuds would get in the way of any republic-wide policy negotiation. Amarillo versus Lubbock, Midland versus Abilene, San Angelo versus everyone else. Sooner or later, the problem fell onto his desk. Once the proper threats were issued and the proper ears, things got done. He never took the credit for it, lest he be put in charge of more thankless tasks. All he wanted was to run his damned army. He was pretty sure that this note on his desk from Dr. Arshad Dalal was not going to make that any easier. It had been telegraphed this morning, direct line. Low tech still confused the hell out of the wires. He took a perverse pleasure in frustrating their efforts to intercept the Republic's communications. Haley placed his reading glasses on the edge of his nose and gave the message once over. Oh, mother. What are we in for now? Colonel? 
Levine, you better take a look at this. The base had been an old U.S. Air Force intelligence training facility. You wouldn't know it for how easy it was to hear everyone's conversations up and down the hall. You'll never guess. Read that. Hmm. Shall I dust off the red carpet, sir? (laughs) Chill the goddamn champagne. What are we up to now? Four? Five, sir. Oh, yeah. The so scentla kid. I think Dr. Diaz is sending them. In fact, we may need to consider having Lily take him off the list. Someone's letting them know he's alive. Wrong direction this time. And Barrett's not happy about it. Still, he wants clearance. What he wants is for us to do his dirty work. Brooklyn, the Olean, via Republic Army Express. Must be a doozy. Do you think he'll make it? Clifton did. He's the only seer to ever get there from the East Route. That's out of... Yeah, I forget how many, too. I never know what to make of all that Vorn stuff. It seems to worry Lily. Only because it puts a dent in his perfect invention. Don't get me wrong, the man's a genius, but you can't expect to reroute all your brain plumbing and get no clogs. So what are my orders? (sighs) Open the channels. Make a hole. Growing up in Brooklyn, Harry Selden had been riding on trains his whole life. Or at least he thought he had. This thing he was in at the moment was more like a rolling Christmas tree. A sleek tube, white on the inside, with reclining chairs where the hard benches should be. Paper ads replaced by worrying pixels. That was just the part of them he could see. Their messages were being conveyed, somewhere on the scale between overt and subliminal, directly into the brains of his fellow passengers. Wireds. A whole train full of wireds. His arguments against the use of rail had been swiftly rebutted. Rewires in the field were statistically less likely to be discovered while using mass transit than while driving cars. Again, the principle of hiding in a crowd, which he well understood. That didn't mean he had to like it. But then, he didn't really like this whole cockeyed road trip to doom scheme. The end could come at any moment. He felt like a hen in a foxhouse. And yet, it was odd. These people around him, these wires, well, they were just people. A young couple with a nine-year-old daughter sat across the aisle from Harry and his father, quietly eating dinner as the snow fell outside their window. Earlier, as the train pulled out of New York, the girl had been talking excitedly about all they had done in NYC, what she was going to tell her friends back home in Toronto. Her parents beamed, a job and life experience well done. Harry side-eyed his snoring father. If there were any freaks on this train, he knew who they were. In fact, he thought, rising from his seat, Harry frankly needed a fucking break from what he was used to. There was alcohol on this train, after all. If he couldn't get a few private moments with a stem sock, at least he could get drunk. He made his way through the doors to the lounge car. Its windowed ceilings buffeted by snow in the twilight. Couches and single padded seats abounded, aimed outwards towards the darkening view. He didn't know how much of his cash he could afford to spend on booze, nor did he care. Swinging by the bar, he was reassured by the fact that bourbon on the rocks existed in both worlds. Harry commandeered the middle of a vacant couch and watched upstate New York go by. Their next stop was Schenectady. He liked the sound of that. Schenectady. Maybe he could just get off there. Find a job at a porno shack and live in a trailer in Schenectady. At least he'd be alive. (laughs) No, he wouldn't. The VEF bastards probably had some way to cut off or inform on his wire. Then he'd be noticed, and who knew what hell would break loose. No two ways about it, he was fucked. He got up and grabbed another bourbon, a double, 
The seat was still indented when he returned. It was quite likely that he would lose weight on this trip, but then dead people often do. In the more populated areas of the lounge car, conversations flickered. Road-tripping young people, commuting salesmen, large families going to and fro around the country for whatever reason. He caught snippets of talk, most of it banal. Who was dating who? Which character in what show was the funniest? Whose mortgages needed refinancing? Familiar pabulum. Rewiring, for all its vaunted benefits, did not fix the human drive to the path of least resistance. People could be boring no matter how their heads were arranged. He had nothing to say to most of the people in his old neighborhood, because most of them had nothing he had any interest in hearing. You're a hacker. Harry was startled into the present. A girl, maybe fifteen. Slacker gear, purposefully arranged, a pose he recognized. Barely a notch short of cute under the acne. Think so? Please. Pace patrol at fifty paces. Don't freak out. I'm not a fed. Just, you know, waiting for a sign from one of my kind. Concrete blonde. Good record. Record? Just your monocle, bro. A teenage hacker chick who listened to Concrete Blonde, he thought. He didn't really care for those odds. He took a quiet sip of bourbon. She was probably referring to the Ghost Head Empire version from just before the secession, though. He, of course, knew the original from the 90s. So, you're the troubled young girl who jams the lines of the establishment for kicks? Come on, not the cheap shot. I'm no Triska. Harry's jaw muscles seized up. He didn't know what a Triska was. His pop culture references were permanently several decades out of date. At least those that coincided with those of the Wired World. But then it dawned on him. Hers were supposed to be also. By dismissing a modern reference, she was entrenching her pose. He hoped. Broken into the Whopper lately? Now that's the shit I'm talking about. Okay, so either this girl was a well-trained spy, or was exactly as she appeared. Alienated youth, reaching into the past for a lost age from which to copy a less recognizable personality template. Brooklyn had these girls. Harry risked giving her a closer look. Black skinny jeans with a few holes. The traditional beat-up converse. Didn't even need knockoffs out here. Weathered hoodie over a grungy t-shirt. Short, tousled brown hair, framed a makeup-free face, whose expression seemed much older than its skin. Sucks to be Dabney Coleman. That guy was in everything. For a while. Shall we play a game? Chess or global thermonuclear war? Truth or dare? What the hell, he thought. This whole thing was a lie. Plus, the bourbon was kicking in. Okay. Truth. What was your biggest hack? Harry risked a grin. Here, he was on more solid ground. He had, in fact, gone on a few exploits in the wired grid. From his safe perch behind the wall. London Underground Cam Network. No shit. See anything saucy? Sadly, no. Huh. Why there? A lot of hours watching old BBC shows. Next best thing to visiting. Hell yeah! I'd fucking blue police box the shit out of London. Harry allowed himself a smile. Drunk nerd talk made him happy. Okay, your turn. Dare. Really? Yeah, I'm gonna give my secrets to some old dude on the train in the dark. <laughs> I was just sitting here drinking. Well, now you can watch me do something stupid. What's it gonna be? Show me what's on your t-shirt. <clears throat> Perv. She pulled the zipper on her hoodie down casually, then threw the folds aside in a sort of defiant compliance. On the rumpled shirt, a face he recognized. David Jansen. Then the logo. The Fugitive. <coughs> Abruptly, Harry's sip of bourbon found its way up his nose. He sputtered, sitting up and pounding his chest. His eyes began to water. 
He reached for a towel and, finding none, used his jacket, spraying a splash of mucus on the sleeve. <laughs> Fuck, dude. You are a lonely man. I just wanted the wrong pipe. <laughs> That's what you tell the old ladies. Okay, your turn. Harry cleared his throat. The sting in his head was slowly ebbing. He pondered the situation. Either this was all a coincidence, or the girl was VEF. Or, some Tubman or other had been interrogated. They'd sent a teenage noir chick to unnerve him on the train. In any case, he certainly couldn't go back to his seat and sleep now. He downed what remained in his glass, swallowing it thoroughly before speaking. Truth. Have you ever met a rewire? Harry was grateful his drink had been emptied, or he might have spilled it. Once or twice. For real? The good is a big place. Yeah, but... How did you know? Like, did they talk weird? How's rewire supposed to sound? I don't know. Primitive? Inbred? <laughs> Inbred? Yeah, I mean, hell. They're cut off from civilization. It's practically the dark ages down in Brooklyn, right? Maybe new and shiny doesn't mean better. Point. Something changed in her expression just then. A softening. A lowered wall. Harry could just make it out behind the facade. Deliberately, she turned to face him. Truth. Harry sensed a lead and followed it. Have you ever hacked your own wire? The girl smiled. A different kind than the one she'd allowed before. Once. And? I've had it zombied since last year. He'd heard about this in his grid hopping. Wired hackers claiming to have bypassed the input-output to their own brains and set up a fake zombie personality in the wire. Very much like the one he was wearing right now. Except theirs was still connected to the gray matter. The consensus among rewired hackers was that this was a built-in wired variable. In allowing advertising space for rebellion, the wired authorities had to allow a programming space in which the hacker believed they were hacking themselves to commit cultural taboo, which of course was profitable for advertisers pushing those accessories. Harry suddenly felt sorry for this girl. She really did think she was free. And she looked it, too. She had probably even read up on total psychology at least the things the wired authorities would let her find. To be so close to the truth, to the locked door, and to be totally unable to locate the lock, much less the key. You don't believe me. No, I do. What's it like? Come on, shy guy. He got it now and it alarmed him. She knew. Something about his behavior had given him away. Just like the workman's clothes hadn't hidden him. Neither could his fake wire. He had been found out, would be found out, Despite himself, he began to sweat. These poor dinks are walking around their little ad-built worlds. But not you. You don't want to talk about this here. <laughs> Please. If they were going to arrest me, it would have happened by now. No, it wouldn't, he thought, because you're not really rewired. With all of his might, he avoided looking at the nearest security camera. It was reading his wire. Had been reading his wire since he entered the car. Was it registering the disconnect between that personality's thoughts and this conversation? Certainly the speech analysis algorithms had to have picked up on the seditious turn of the discussion. How well and how quickly did they cross-check that with his zombie wires activities? How much closer attention had they been paying since the girl had approached him? Surely she merited more scrutiny than the average citizen. He had to get out. Look, I really need to pee. Yeah, right, fine. Guess I'll catch you later. Yeah. Or report you. Fucking creeper. Look, I was... Yeah, yeah. Bye, loser. Harry hustled his way out of the car. He couldn't look back. He was as dangerous to her as she was to him. What gears were turning already in the unseen machine? 
Returning, he found his father awake. Drunk on duty. Good job, soldier. Harry drew in any and all retorts, instead fumbling in his coat pocket for pencil and paper. Lars eyed him suspiciously. Producing the implements, Harry wrote a quick note. What's the next station with the safe house? Passing it to his father, he sat back and stared deliberately at the back of the seat ahead of him. Without pausing, Lars rode just below. Buffalo? Why? Harry reached over, without looking, and grabbed the paper, casually glancing down for a second before crumpling it. Buffalo. Probably five hours or so. Maybe they were safe for that long. His father's stare burned a hole in his head, even if Harry wasn't looking at him. He grabbed another slip of paper and wrote one thing more. Too many eyes in the bar car. Sorry, we need to get off at Buffalo. They needed new wires. They weren't even out of New York State yet. He had already called attention to himself. Or not. Who could know? But there was no room for error. Not out here. Harry felt a stab of regret. What would become of the girl? Maybe nothing. The wires could get what they needed from her without so much as a bump in the night. But what they wanted from him would have to come out the hard way. been listening to the naive theater of the air performance of Rewired, featuring Ed Rogers as Dr. Waylon Lilly, Aidan Wright as Dr. Arshad Dalal, Levi Ray as Harry, Reed Perry as Lars, Derek Davis as Dr. James Barrett, Mana as Dr. Romana Vinson, Dan Herman as Eugene Foch, Trista Morris as Nina, Janice McCall as the voice of the satellite, Keegan McEnroe as Colonel Levi Haley, Antonio Thomas as Major Curtis Levine, and Alex Searcy as the girl on the train. Written and narrated by Matthew Broyles. Theme music by Paul Shapira. I'm Little Jack Melody. Tune in next time for Episode 5, Endurance. <laughs>